Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Darren. Good to see you all here today. <clears throat> if you'd like to have a church Bible, you will be able to follow what we're talking about, and I'll tell you the page number in just a moment, and Phil will bring one if you haven't brought your own. It's Hebrews chapter 1. I'll tell you the page number. It is page 1201. 1,201 in the church Bibles. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1. Before I just read that, I don't know whether you um, are really excited it's Christmas. Whether you're sort of hardly sleep in anticipation and excitement that Christmas is coming. Well, I doubt it. But there are some around like that, and some may be in your family like that. If you've got youngsters, they might be getting more and more excited day by day, and teachers will be getting more and more frazzled day by day, getting ready for Christmas, and the nativity programs that take place, and the carol singing, and all of that sort of stuff that takes place. And it seems to start almost earlier every year, and... Uh, we, we look forward to it at the time, at least I look forward to it at the time, but uh, I don't know that I look forward to it weeks and weeks beforehand, but uh, that's where we are. It's the beginning of December, Advent season, and we're looking forward to Christmas time. And here at Abbey Church, we're starting, as we've already had uh, explained to us, starting a, a series during these few Sundays of December in which we'll be looking at what Christmas really is all about, under the general title for the month of Look Who's Coming to Stay. Look Who's Coming to Stay. And today we're thinking of what child is this, taken from the carol, Christmas carol. What child is this? I, I, I grew up a lot of my childhood in Essex. And Essex, amongst other places, has Canvey Island. And Canvey Island, I don't know whether you read it in the press this last week, Canvey Island at their, their nativity at the school, it's it, the parents are in uproar about it all, and other people too, because the nativity has been adapted. Now, we're, I suppose we're used to seeing all, you know, 50 different types of animals coming to the nativity scene and 60 stars and all that sort of stuff, just so that all the boys and girls can take part in a nativity program at school. And it gets stretched a little bit, but it's going a bit too far when you take it like Canvey Island has done. And um, they have two robbers coming in to the uh, manger to steal the manger, which is full of jewels. Bill and George, I think it is. Bill and George who come to steal the manger um, while the, while the uh, children sing Away with the Manger. And uh, I... I <laughs> I don't think that that really is in the Bible, and it's stretching things a bit too far. And uh, it's um, something that's caused a bit of a stir over there. But it's good for us to think of what Christmas really is about. Otherwise, why bother to celebrate it at all? It seems a bit pointless. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 1201 in the church Bibles. And it's on the screen too. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So at Christmas, what child is this? There are many people who in these days are seeking to know what is the truth that holds things together. The philosophers call it what is the meta-narrative that overrides and runs over everything that sort of enables everything in our understanding to cohere, to hold together. What is that truth? Is there a meta-narrative, one theme that holds everything together and makes sense of life, whether we're living here in the West or whether we're in the East, whether in a, in an, um, a rural community, whether in a tribal situation, or whether we're in a university somewhere, what is that meta-narrative that holds everything together? And the conviction of the Bible is that there is one thing that holds everything together in meaning, and that is, of course, Jesus himself. If you bypass Jesus Christ, you will always be seeking the truth never coming to a knowledge of it if you bypass Jesus. The Bible speaks of teachers who in their vanity come up with all sorts of ideas. They seek the truth but never come to a knowledge of it. The Bible speaks of those. Now the conviction of the Bible is that Jesus is not just someone who speaks the truth or someone who tells us the truth or helps us to understand the truth, but someone who is the truth. He said on one occasion, I am the truth. It's not that we come to church to learn about Jesus, though we do learn about him. It's not that we come to talk about Jesus, though we do talk about him, as I am doing now. But we come to know Jesus, so that we might experience him, and that experience will lead us to praise and worship together because Jesus himself is the truth that will make sense of life. Now there's one thing that is unique about Christianity and that is, well it separates Christianity from every other religion and that one thing is Jesus Christ himself. Now you may well say, well other religions have their own important people. There's Buddha, or there's Confucius, or there's Muhammad, who all are prominent people in these different religions. But the difference is this, you can be a follower of Muhammad and not know Muhammad. You can be a follower of Confucius and his teachings and never know Confucius. You can be a follower of Buddha and never know Buddha. After all, they've died. But you cannot be a Christian without knowing Jesus. Not knowing about him, but without knowing Jesus. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. After all, in Islam, for example, um, 
as long as you've got Muhammad's teaching, and uh, you at least have some understanding of it, you can salvage from that what it means to be a Muslim, and you can be a Muslim. The religion can, can thrive as long as you know that teaching. But you cannot separate Christ, you cannot separate Jesus from his teaching or example or doctrine, and therefore to know his teaching, example or doctrine, you need to know Jesus himself. Christianity is not teaching about Jesus, it's coming to know Jesus. So you cannot separate the teaching from the person. It says in the Bible that Jesus is, for example, the foundation, the foundation. You cannot construct a building without the foundation. It describes Jesus as being the cornerstone. The building will collapse without Christ. He is the one thing that holds everything together. He's our life. He doesn't just give us life. And the most important thing that you can come to know is to know the truth, not just about Jesus, but to know Jesus himself. Now, this passage in the Bible, which is going to be on the screen, well, it is on the screen in front of us, tells us a whole host of things about Jesus. I just want to touch on three things this morning. First of all, it tells us that he creates. Jesus creates. It says in verse 2, through whom he made the universe. He's the power behind creation. He's the agency through which God did the creating of all things. First verse of John's Gospel says, All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In other words, it's, well, it's very final indeed. He's the image of the invisible God, says the Apostle Paul, for by him all things were created. Jesus creates. He's the creator of all things visible and invisible. By him God created all things. So as we approach Christmas time and we in our minds will go to Bethlehem and we'll see shepherds coming to Bethlehem and wise men bringing gifts from afar, the one that they are bringing their gifts to lying in a bed of straw in a manger, a food trough for the cattle, that one to whom they come is the very one that the Bible says is the creator of all things. What it says in the Bible. The carpenter of Nazareth, Jesus, when he grew up with splinters in his fingers and blisters on his hands from the saw and the tools that he used to make tables and chairs and make uh, yokes for the oxen and so on. That Jesus is the one who made the very wood that he's working on. He's the creator of all things. He's the power behind all creation. But he's not only the power behind all creation, he's the preserver of all creation. It says in verse 3 on the screen, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, that's especially meaningful to us because there are a lot of people who say, well, what's going to happen in the world? Where's it going? What's happening? Is it going to end up with a fool, an idiot, pressing the wrong button? Is Iran going to get nuclear weapons and all of a sudden, at some crazy act, maybe trying to destroy Israel or whatever it does, something goes wrong and gradually the thing builds up and so on and it'll all come to an end? Is, is it going to be a, a fool like that? 
going to bring an end to it all? Or is it going to be to do with what science discovers? So science, by the way, it's interesting, isn't it, that a couple of decades ago, they used to accuse preachers of scaring the world, talking about the end of the age and what's going to happen and so on and frightening people. They used to accuse preachers of doing that. But today, it's not the preachers, it's the scientists who are doing it. It's the scientists. I mean, there was a time when people were worried about a worldwide nuclear threat, maybe. Or perhaps global sickness, a pandemic spreading across the world in some measure or another. And um, genetic manipulation of crops was part of all that, that fear. And then there are others who say, well, maybe it's a madman. They wondered even about Saddam, but of course he didn't. And then there are others who say, no, well, it's global warming that's going to bring an end of the age. It's all that. And I, I don't know whether it's true. God might use one or other of those. I have no idea. But what you can be sure of, as far as the Bible is concerned, that the end of the age, when it comes and however it comes, it will only be because God says that's it. He may use some of these things, but it's when God says it's the time. Because he upholds all things. By his powerful word, he upholds it all. He's the one who makes a cosmos out of chaos in this world. It once was said by one of the greatest scientists who ever lived, Isaac Newton. Some would consider him the greatest scientist who ever lived, but Isaac Newton once said that as he studied the universe and the laws of nature that he was trying to to learn about, what he was actually doing, he said, was thinking God's thoughts after him as he tried to discover it all. But the Bible teaching is that it's Jesus who keeps the sun, the moon, and stars in place. He uses natural, as we call them, mechanisms, but it's he who controls it all. In fact, you've probably heard just recently they've discovered a, a planet that's not in an orbit, as far as they can tell, and it's just hurtling around by itself, not circling around other things, and the, the, the scientists don't know how it can possibly happen, because most planets are kept in, uh, kept in the right place by their um, solar system in which they're found, but this one is just traveling through the galaxy without anything, as far as they can tell. We, we, we don't know all these things. But what difference does it make, knowing that he upholds all things? Well, simply this. Without him, there would be total disintegration and total ruin. But with him, he sustains all things, upholds all things by his powerful word. Now, that means us too. Our relationships. Husbands and wives. He will enable that to be maintained. World government, if you like. The economy and well-being of society. All, all those things. They're held together. And when you reject all that Jesus is and offers, don't be too surprised when chaos begins to follow and things begin to fall apart. Because he's the power of creation, but he's the sustainer of creation too. But he's also the possessor of it. It says in verse 2 there, he is appointed heir of all things. It belongs to him. The New English Bible at the end of Romans chapter 11 says this, He is the source, guide, goal of all that is. All that is. 
And one of the greatest errors that we can make is to think that when we pay our, well, I don't know how much you pay, but 500, 600, 700 pounds a month for your mortgage or whatever it is that you might pay on your mortgage. When you're paying that each month, one of the greatest errors we have is that we think that we're buying something for ourselves. I mean, that piece of land on which your house is built, you may think that belongs to you, but just try taking it somewhere else. It, it, it can't be. It, of course, we know what we mean, and we delight to do it so that we can say that this house is mine and so on, but actually, it says in, that actually all things of this creation are his. It's what it says. and He's the possessor of all things. So God, in Jesus, is creating. He's the power of creation, the preserver of creation, and the possessor of creation. But then this passage tells us a second thing. Not only that he creates, but that he speaks. Jesus speaks. Or God speaks to us through Jesus, to be more accurate. Verse 2, he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his Son. If God is a God of love, and that's the picture the Bible gives of him, then he has to speak. He has to show his love. After all, you can hardly say that you love someone if you never can communicate anything. And there is no communication at all. Love must manifest itself. He must reveal himself. We can't see God. No eye has ever looked upon God. But he has carefully, patiently revealed himself through his son Jesus. That's to say, to say in these last days he's spoken to us through a son, he says. So God is speaking to Now that means today, if you want to hear God, if you want to know what God has to say, then you have to listen to Jesus. Because that's how God speaks today. He has spoken in the past through all sorts of things. Through nature, but that was incomplete. Through conscience, but that is incomplete and sometimes marred. Through law, like those given to Moses, but that's incomplete. Through the prophets of the Old Testament, but they were incomplete. Through events of history, but they're incomplete. In these days, the final word that God has to say, the one last time in which he speaks is through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there's no more revelation. Now that just has a, a practical consequence for us. You may say, well, Christianity is very interesting, but so is Islam, so is Confucianism, so is, well, you might think of a whole host of religions, Buddhism and a whole lot of those things. Maybe I ought to study all of them and see which one I like best out of all those. But the argument of the Bible is just this that as God has finally spoken to us through Jesus, everything that follows, if somebody comes along later and says, I've got a further revelation, I am the prophet who comes with this further revelation, you can reject it immediately. Because the final revelation comes through Jesus. I mean, let me put it like this. Supposing I said to you, I have um, inherited a lot of money a huge amount of money, and I've made 
provision for you to have a wonderful holiday, a month's holiday in the Bahamas with your family and friends, free of charge. There's a ticket, there are tickets for you all, reserved, first-class ticket to fly to the Bahamas. And um, there's a hotel booking in a five-star hotel and money provided at the other end for the best restaurants and there's a speedboat for you to use and so on. You can have it. It, you'll find the money and the tickets in the third drawdown in classroom number seven, over there. Just all you've got to do is go and pick it up. Now, what would you do if you believed me? Well, you'd go and look. What you wouldn't do is say, well, I'd better just check the rest first. I'll go to classroom number one and check the first drawer, and then the second drawer. And then the third drawer, fifth drawer, sixth, sixth drawer, and so on. Then classroom number two. You wouldn't do that. You'd go straight to where you were told that the gift was, and you'd look there first of all. That makes sense. You can ignore the rest. And that's exactly how the Bible speaks about Jesus. God has at these last times spoken to us through Jesus. He's the one to listen to. And once you've listened to him, you realize you don't need to listen to all the rest because he's the final revelation of God. And he puts it like this in verse 3, he's the outraying, the radiance of God's glory. The invisible God who cannot be seen can be seen in Jesus as Jesus shines out. He's the reflection of God's glory. He shows us what God is like. At Christmas time, no doubt we shall sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. In um, Charles Wesley's famous Christmas carol, Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. That's exactly what this passage says here. In Jesus, we see what God is like and he reveals himself to us. So I want to ask you, are you listening to him? If you're wanting to discover this thing that helps life to cohere, sustains life, keeps it going, and makes sense of life, then you need to listen to him. God has spoken to us through his Son. And one thing I should just add about that is that when he speaks, he speaks in a personal way to us. Personal way. He made the impersonal God personal. He made the invisible God visible. He makes the unapproachable God approachable so that we can come to God. The last thing I'll say in this passage is not only that Jesus is God creating and Jesus is God speaking, but Jesus is God acting. Acting. I suppose nothing is as important to us today than to understand the fact that God is not a bystander just watching the creation that he'd made. He's involved in it. He acted in it and acts in it. Some people think that the world was made by God and God, like a top, you know, he set it spinning and then he just watches it and it gradually is winding down. For the philosophers amongst us, that's called deism. That understanding of God. But that's not the Bible picture of God. The Bible picture of God is that he is not just got it, made it, and sustains it. He keeps it going. He's involved in it. And uh, there are lots of ways in which he's involved in it. it. But God is interested. 
And that means he's interested in you. He's interested in me. After all, that's why we're here this morning, because God is interested in us. He's interested with the, uh, in the argument that you had with your partner today, with the row you had with your children last week. He's interested with your health problems that are being faced in the family. He's interested in the difficulties you face. He's interested in the joys and the things that delight you and that please you. He's interested in all those things. He's interested in your future. He's interested in the present and the past. He's interested. He's involved in those things. And the Bible shows that God cares and loves. But you never know it apart from Jesus. Unless you come to Jesus, you'll never know that. Because that's how God reveals himself and speaks to us. And more than that, in Jesus, he is actually acting. Now, how is he acting? Well, it says in verse 3, when he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. What does that mean? It means that part of the work of Jesus, and one of the main parts of the work of Jesus, was to deal with the defilement of sin. The things that we do that we wish we didn't do. The things that we do when we do it deliberately. Whatever you might think of. I know we don't like talking about sin, but all of us are failures. We're all in the same boat. We've all failed in different ways, in word and thought and deed. But Jesus came to deal with us in deal with that in such a way that he provided purification, cleansing from it. That means, of course, that if Jesus provided purifications for sins, it means that you can't provide it. Because he's done it. You don't get your sin dealt with by going to church or by the dedication of an infant. Important though both of those things are. Purification for sin comes through what Jesus did. He provided purification for sins. You won't get purification for sins by trying to live a decent life, though I hope we all do try to live a decent life. I'm sure we do. He provided purification for sins. And the proof of that is that when he'd done it, it says here, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that simply means this. It's finished. It's done. He sat down. Work done. Finished. Work completed. Sacrifice accepted. And because of that, it goes on to tell us, he is superior to any other power. It says here, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So here we are at Christmas. A few weeks, we shall be laughing and joking and celebrating. Well, a few weeks and three weeks and two days, isn't it? It's on Tuesday. We're looking forward to it. But the whole purpose of Christmas is that Jesus is God speaking to us and coming for us that we might rejoice in knowing him personally. And at the end of our time today, I want to say this to you, that you personally can know him. I know that, you know, in Christian things, everybody talks about, you know, coming to God and knowing him and so on, but it's never become personal to so many people. Jesus 
coming at Christmas becomes personal when you realize he came to deal with your needs, your sin, to uphold your life, to be the very one who takes control of yourself. We're going to pray together now, and as we do, I'm going to just have a moment of quietness when you can respond to God in your heart. You say, well, I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to say. That doesn't matter because God looks at our hearts. He doesn't listen to our words. So if you don't know how to express it, just tell him in any words that you know that you want him to become real in your experience. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Bible passage. Help us, we pray. At this Christmas time, perhaps in a way never before, We pray that we might see you speaking, hear you speaking, see you acting, and realize that you are the creator of all things, who deserves all things, so that we might respond to yourself. So just respond to what we've been talking about today. Do you need to open your life to him and say, Lord Jesus, I want to hear you speaking to me. Lord Jesus, I need the cleansing in my life that only you can bring. Lord Jesus, I want to know your power sustaining my life and helping me to live for you day by day. Lord Jesus, you've listened to our prayers, the cries of our heart. And in our inability to put these things very clearly into words, we thank you that you listen to the very cries of our hearts, whether we know how to express it or not. And thank you as we come to this Christmas time for such a wonderful time of the year to know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So help us to recognize who Jesus is and why he came, so that we might respond to him and live for the praise of his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.